1: And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, today I'm super excited because we have Michael Mortensen. Michael is the director of Livable City Planning Limited. He's an urban planner, an adjunct professor at UBC Sauter School of Business. All around, hilarious and insightful guy. Uh, Really, really enjoyed this conversation. Great turns of
2: phrases. Uh, There's a few things about Michael, right? One... Very fun to listen to. Yeah. Very you bright. were just scribbling down his I phrases. I was jotting down his phrases. There's one about Flin Flon that really stuck with me. Yeah. You've just
1: adopted his yeah, uh, I, know. I talk you're, like you're, him though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is like uh talented Mr. Ripley. <laughs> How's the peeping, Tommy? How's the peeping? Uh it's a good it's a good show. It's though.
2: it's a great show. And and yeah, one of the one of, we should say one of the reasons we asked Michael on, apart from kind of the wide reaching conversation we had, is recently, well Michael Ferrera was was the one who pointed it out, Michael. Right. Good Pasquez, friend of the show. Good friend of the show. Fan favorite. Absolutely, he's coming back on soon from Urban Analytics. Right. But uh, he said you got to get Michael on to speak to the Patrick Condon episode we
1: had. Sure. Um, and these guys went at it in the Tai recently. Oh yeah, some real academic sparring couple gloves off jabs to the face. There might even be a couple knockout blows in this <laughs> in this episode today. It's uh it's it's always that's my favorite thing about the academic side of this show is we've had also uh we had a match between Tom Davidoff and uh, Andre Pavlov, both good friends of the show. Yeah, but man, we had. Actually, they don't agree on much. Do you remember that we did that in Tom's kitchen? And Andre wouldn't even say it
2: was his. He wouldn't even admit it was a kitchen.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that's how little these guys agree, <laughs> right? But they both agree that the donuts we brought were delicious. Uh, <laughs> but the here's the thing: I would love to get Patrick Condon and Michael Mortensen in the same room to debate this issue on uh, on supply um, and on, of course, the the MERP. Yeah, this is this is the apartment program that the city of Vancouver
2: has. Uh, basically, how to create affordable housing in the city, who should be building it, right. what the incentive should be. Uh, it's it's all the devil's in the details. But this conversation. Uh, it, Don't, I don't want to undersell it. This is an exciting conversation.
1: No, no, exactly. Because we talk about, he's so interesting from so many different perspectives because he's a planner, but he also comments on what's happening in the market. He's working with urban analytics in a lot of ways. And developers. And developers.
2: What does he call himself? A pracademic. A pracademic. A practical academic, I
1: think. Right. Right. He's
2: he's marrying two terms There's no
1: critique of the ivory tower for this guy. He's on the ground. (laughs) That's Um, right. But really, we cover a lot of things, and we talk about the market, where the market's going, affordability, um, why are we so expensive, What's going to happen over the next few years? We do some predictions. This is just an incredible episode all around. I've been I've been thinking about a lot of this uh, since we talked to him what a week week and
2: a half ago for sure. So yes. stay tuned for that. Michael is fantastic. What else do we got before we uh, cut to the interview? Well, a few things. Yeah. One is the stats came out. More of the same.
1: Right. More of the same. This feels like the busiest out of the gates start to a market at least in my career, I, that I've ever been involved in. You know, it feels just so busy right now. And every agent we're talking to is just kind of running off It is feet. crazy. Like,
2: there's a few, a few interesting things I've been thinking about here. Like, one is a lot of old clients. It's funny how many people ask this. Like, how is business different than it was, you know, pre-COVID? Mm-hmm. Not in terms of the market, but actually just how you go about showing houses. And in a lot of ways, it's business as usual. But as January ramped up to feel like kind of fever pitch April... It actually dawned on me that it's different, right? You used to have an open house with, you know, 25, 30 people through. Well, you can't do that anymore. Sure. So there's two ways it's different. One is it's almost, for a busy listing, it's almost hard to get people through. Yeah. Like you don't have enough spaces, time slots allotted to get everybody who wants to get through, through. But two, if you're working uh, as a buyer's agent, like my Sunday – This past Sunday, you know, usually you say, okay, well, uh, you know, people are going through opens and and we're reconnecting on certain things, but you're not. Now you basically have to line up appointment after appointment after appointment. You know, I started before 10 o'clock and right up to 6 just from showing to showing to showing to showing to showing uh, multiple clients. It was crazy. And I was, you know— the agent was late for the first appointment, screwed up the whole day for
1: me. I was late for every That's single what people, you know the, the one after. thing about going out on tour, that's the thing that that you, if you screw up the one first one of the most one, stressful things it's about It's a this, domino's uh, effect. I, I, I hate, hate to say effect. it, but it is the worst when you're 15 minutes behind for an entire day. There's some agents that that's just how they roll. Yeah. You know, it's like, ah, I'm 15 minutes behind. They don't even call or text. And,
2: and, but the thing is, is like, you can plan, it doesn't matter how long you've been in the business or how well you plan, because there's so many moving parts. There's other right. people that show up late. There's clients who take longer than you think, sure. you know, staring at a storage locker. There's all sorts of things that can mess something up. Right. Um, and one, it's a domino effect. Yeah. Um. But anyway, one more thing, Adam, about the kind of busyness of this start of February is, you know, we met with a couple of good friends of the program, Michael Yu uh, last night and- yep. uh, owner and, of uh, Oakland Realty. And, and Corey Wright from William Wright this Best morning. dressed guy in the
1: business, owner of <laughs> by, William Wright Commercial. By
2: far, yeah. by far the best dressed guy in the business. And like part of the conversation that happened there was, it's interesting that 2021 is shaping up to, it feels like 2016, 2017 where- Sure. But there's no bogeyman. Right, yeah. you can, there, who's to blame now? Is it yeah. shadow flipping? Is it foreign buyers? Like all of those things are gone. Right, yeah. we're we're much more regulated. Yeah, the debate between is it supply? Is it uh, you know demand from outside? All these things. I feel like the verdict's in. Right, and uh, and we're running like we never have before. It's it's there's busy. there's very few. I guess this is all to say, and we've heard it on this program before. There are very few bullets left in the the government gun here to shoot at this market
1: and uh and and like where do we go from here? Is the verdict in is it Bogeyman or boogeyman? I think it's the, Bogey. Okay, cuz cuz I cause, Oh, maybe it's yeah. boogeyman. Is it Boogieman? Cuz I mean the Boogieman lives in your closet. <laughs> the Bogeyman is that the is that, I don't know. Uh what else do we got for today?
2: <laughs> what else do we have Oakland Realty is our sponsor. This is our brokerage, the best brokerage in town, bar none. The culture is incredible. If you're a new agent, an aspiring agent, somebody who's just looking to make a change, looking to get
1: uh, into a work environment that's very exciting. Which Uh, also happens to be one of the fastest growing companies in Canada right now.
2: Head over to oakland.com, slash join, type in VRP 2020. I think part of on the agenda yesterday with Michael was to update that and, we password and we've
1: just, we just, told, we talked right through it. It's too still, much to catch up on. It's still
2: VRP 2020, yes. oakland.com slash join VRP 2020. Meet with Michael, Morgan, and the gang. You will not be disappointed. Also, Adam, we
1: have the Sellers Club. Yeah, Matt. And if you are not part of a Sellers Club, what are you doing? There's no there's, there's no better club to be part of. It's COVID safe.
2: This is like being at a party in the penthouse at Tellus Gardens on Saturday. Yeah. night.
1: <laughs> God, eh? What? Why? (laughs) Why? What are you doing? What? But they were interviewing guys that owned it. Like, how did they even get them all up? Also, how did did you? How did you get to the penthouse? Also, why? It sounds
2: like the guy owns the penthouse at Tallis Gardens, like a three-floor penthouse. Does he? But it also sounded like it was fully. Uh, the whole plan was to make money as, as a nightclub. Like it seems was like it? he was charging. He was charging. I think there was door fees. I think there was bottle service, but like it was a nightclub. Yeah. He was looking to make money. And it seems like if you own the Pentos Hotel's garden, you might want to not find a loophole in, or not even, it wasn't right. even a loophole.
1: It was just breaking the rules. I was actually out uh, two days ago with a client of mine who she's been vaccinated and uh, oh, wow. it was kind of great. It's like a superpower. It's like, what are you doing here? Why are you not <laughs> in a nightclub at Tellus Gardens uh, or or in the Bahamas or something? But really, she's vaccinated, and I guess it's it, she's in the healthcare world. But I, the, the reality, though, is... Uh, just ripped oh, my yeah. mask off immediately. Drove she in the must same actually, car.
2: It must be incredible for her. Right? Yeah, like and she's I guess walking through. The, yeah, superpower. That's exactly it is a it. superpower. I even it of is. That.
1: I. It was. It was. I. I even told as I was leaving the house. I. I told Sabrina my wife, and she was like, "Really? Like it's weird right now." Uh, and she was super excited about it. I showed up without a mask. She got in with a mask on. And then she was like, looked at me like, "What are you doing?" And I was so excited to be mask-free, but apparently they don't shook hands. They don't know if she can transfer COVID. Like she could still potentially be a conduit. Uh, So I had to put my mask back on, but it was in the trunk. So uh, we had to drive awkwardly with uh, me holding my breath. Um, Anyways, but. but anyway, this is all to say the seller's club You yes. should definitely be a part of the seller's club. What exactly is the seller's yeah, club? Yeah, the at? seller's club, Matt, we are sending out the best resources for how to sell your, your home for top dollar in the shortest amount of time. Uh, you can just send us an email or you can be on the live wire list, which is our newsletter, and just respond. We have a button on the mailer that goes out once a week. And Matt, Let's uh, – we've been kind of at this for now uh, 11 minutes. We, this is, we, this we is far too long. We should probably cut to our interview. We should cut to our interview. Last but not least, we do have a spring
2: incentive. Yes. This is for listeners of this show who are looking to list their property this spring with Scalina Real Estate. Big incentive for you and your friends and family. This incentive is transferable. So if you know people that you think, hey, these guys should use some pros, get top dollars, sell their place – and get an incentive. We're we're very open right. uh, to those referrals as well. Everybody wins, especially your friends and family and yourself. Spring incentive over at Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. But maybe Adam, we should cut to our our talk uh, with Michael Mortensen. This
1: one will not disappoint. One of uh, one of my favorite chats uh, we've had in a in a very long time. Uh, Michael Mortensen, enjoy. Okay, so we're here with Michael Mortensen. He's an urban planner, adjunct professor at UBC Sauder School of Business, and director of Livable City Planning Limited. How are you doing, Michael?
3: Pretty good, Matt. <clears throat> Hi, Adam.
1: How are you doing? Great, great. Thanks for taking the time today, Michael.
3: Yeah, you're welcome.
1: Can you maybe start, Michael, by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself?
3: Well, I'm, a, I'm an urban planner who does, who does development. Development consulting, um, and as you mentioned, I teach at uh, at UBC and SFU in the city program. Um, and I work. I have multiple vantage points on the industry. I work uh, both in the in the private sector. I consult for um, public sector organizations like BC Housing. Uh, in my past I worked for CMHC, uh, looking after half of uh, the, the provinces uh, affordable housing stock, uh, the operating agreements that um, that govern how co-ops and and nonprofits work. So I've got, I've got multiple view, viewpoints on the, on the development industry in Vancouver and the region. So, um, I work, I work at all scales. So I'm a director of, uh, uh an organization called Small Housing BC that advocates for, you know, sensitive types of infill. Um, how do we, you know, asking the question, how do we make better use of, of our existing land? And I also work at the large scale, you know, developing, uh, master plan projects uh, that in- include, um, uh, towers multi- and, and mixed use development.
2: Fantastic. Just kind of out of left field, and I haven't been in a university for a long time, but we have talked to a lot of people from the solder School, which I, I don't think this necessarily applies. But being in both the private sector and uh, in the, the kind of academic world, do you find there's a, 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 a big disconnect there? Um, how do you see those two worlds? Like, are they actually <clears throat> talking to each other?
3: Huh. Sometimes. Uh, you know, and definitely, uh, you know, solder reaching out to people working in the industry uh, who have their their hands on actual, you know, live development projects as an example of of where um, where academia meets the sort of practical reality of the world. Uh, I, I like to call it pracademics, you know, people who who have both uh, the ability to teach, but but are also very directly involved in some form of work um, that they're teaching. So uh, yeah, I kind of consider myself a pracademic. <laughs> Um, but sometimes, sometimes you do get academics who really don't who don't have a you know a, um, a lot of a lot of direct current uh, knowledge or experience. So there there's a challenge sometimes there.
2: Right, right. A lot of a lot of theorizing, um, but not yeah. that real world kind of practicality. How to get things built? How to how to actually get things done?
1: Sometimes. So, Michael, maybe we'll start kind of, we're obviously in the midst of a pandemic here, and um, we're curious kind of, because the city of Vancouver has had some some real pain points during COVID, I think, and uh, how has COVID changed the trajectory of the city, and, and, and what do you think the long-term impact uh, will be, if any?
3: I don't think it's budged. The trajectory of the city of Vancouver. Frankly, if anything, it reinforces Vancouver's place in the world as a safe place to live, with a great healthcare system, civil society, the rule of law, great education, a great a great physical environment. Um, I think I think we've done quite well. Um, and I know people are hurting economically. But um, I think generally, the city has proved itself to be resilient. Our cities have proved themselves to be resilient as well, too. Even high-density um, parts of our cities, like the downtown core, um, you know, we have not seen you know, massive, full-blown pandemic exposures in, in high-rise buildings, for example, where people fear that, you know, oh, this is the end of the high-rise or this is the end of the office. Um, I think those things are still going to be powerful forces moving forward.
2: So it sounds like, uh, in your mind, this uh, all, all the talk about um, people moving to the suburbs, people moving to smaller communities. Um, you know, Kennedy Stewart worrying about the city going bankrupt. I think that was in the near term, but all these all these things were a little
3: overblown. I think there are yeah there are near term challenges in terms you know including you know the economic challenges of, of, of tax revenue for example and, and people paying rent. Those are all really serious near-term issues, but long-term, I think people will um, there will be a tendency to to try and work work further, work from further, uh, live in cheaper places where you can get more space. But but in general, I think the world will still be moving to Vancouver in big numbers, just you know on the basis of our quality of life and the quality of our cities, not just Vancouver, but I'm thinking about the entire region. I do think that the exodus to the suburbs, if people you know do make that choice. They'll, they'll learn fairly quickly if it works for them or not. You know, sometimes I think of, um. You know the, the far-flung suburban lifestyle as a, as a prison sentence served in small increments, where people get tra- get trapped on the freeway every day. You know, an hour in, an hour out. That adds up. It adds up to actually a long sentence, and uh, you don't get out until you you stop working. So uh, um, that's kind of you know my my take on
1: it. I, I had a conversation with a friend of mine the other day. I'm I'm just wondering if the, the the one of the big fallouts of this will be that there's a bunch of people living in the suburbs going, "What have I done?" Right. <laughs> um, yeah, there'll be
3: a, there'll be a boomerang effect. I think, as some people say, oh, this isn't for me. It, it, it can work for some people, and um, and and it, and it will give them you know give them telecommuting and, and being able to work from home. Um, but you know what? The, the need for interaction and see, people are hungry. I mean, I was just talking to one of one of the architects working on a big project i'm I'm doing, and he's just dying for social interaction and and the collegiality of face-to-face work, where you can just both work over over a table with some plans and actually have real-time conversation with all the nuances of real interaction and conversation. you, you know, um, I don't think telework is ever going to replace that.
2: Right, so we've been doing this for a number of years, and and you know I I would say from 2016 through to March of 2020, you know it was in in some respects kind of this uh, ongoing conversation about this move towards urban centers and global cities, and and you know talent uh, begets talent, and all, all these kind of conversations that that COVID seems to have stopped. In its tracks a little bit. It sounds like you're you're kind of confident in Vancouver's place in the world and the region. I'm just wondering, um, and I'm thinking kind of of a, a story I read in the New York Times maybe a week ago about you know all these Silicon Valley people leaving San Francisco and and going to Florida and Texas and all over the place, and they're realizing oh it's so much cheaper and. And uh, what a great move this has been. Can you just talk a little bit more, I guess, less about Vancouver and the region and more about just cities in general and how they figure into the landscape moving forward?
3: Well, I always think of, I think of, you know, Lewis Mumford, The City in History, a really great book for you know, people starting urban studies, or Jane Jacobs, where where they both talk about work and new work, new ideas and cities as as the epicenters for new ideas, Richard Florida talks about this too. Cities as cultural, as cultural centers of production. Um, you know, nothing is going to change that. I think we need we need that sort of propinquity gathering intensity, in, in order to exchange new ideas, create new ideas, new new ways of living, new ways of working. Um, that's not going to change. So I think, you know, uh, some people may move and, and find other places. And, and yeah, you know, there are a lot of really cheap places. Um, David Baxter, a demographer uh, who, you know, who did a lot of work in Vancouver. He once said, you know, that, that house in, in Flinflon, Manitoba, is going to be the most expensive house you ever buy in your life. Because, because your, your, your future earnings are going to plummet, generally speaking. Right. You know, um, so I think cities will always have that magnet appeal. Uh, they always have, from you know Babylon, Mesopotamia, Ur, to the present day. Cities are centers of innovation and and uh, and and you know new new ideas.
1: As two guys who grew up playing hockey in Flin Flon, Manitoba, uh, that really <laughs> yeah. that really hits home. Yeah. Getting beat up on the rink and flint
3: flon <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Oh, no. <laughs> gonna, okay, two minutes in the penalty box. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and, and
2: just as an aside, here we're we're pretty early on in this talk, and I feel like there's already two lines I'm going to use: <laughs> <laughs> the flint flon right. line and and that great line about the the prison. This is this yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, uh, prison, so, pr- prison sentence
3: served <laughs> in small <laughs> increments. So.
1: I'll, I'll cite you though for sure. <laughs> Excellent. So so Michael, um, one of one of the things. That kind of keeps coming up on this show is uh, the idea of like the last pandemic um, leading to the Roaring Twenties and the feeling right now like you've kind of talked how how, um, you know colleagues and and it just seems like that's the buzz out there that everybody wants to get back to social interaction. Do you see this as kind of a, a, a you know with the vaccination on its way? Um, and this desire for people to kind of break out of lockdown. Do you see this as the beginning of potentially the roaring 2020s in, in, in Canada?
3: No, right, uh, I think they're more moderating influences, um, you know, at least within the real estate industry. Uh, you know, We have four levels of government all all trying to, to impact um, housing demand, you know, housing supply uh, with, with various levels of success. Um so, you know, I think, and I think we have fiscal policy on the federal level, um, in terms of mortgage spending and qualification that's still in place. Um, you know, the cost of land is high. The cost of construction is high. Uh, the cost of government fees has skyrocketed over the last few decades as well. So, so, but I think, yeah, you know, there's, a lot of, there's pent-up demand. I think you'll see it in the housing market as people, you know, who have been waiting in the sidelines to buy something Um move forward. Interest rates are super low. You know, I think you can get a mortgage now for 1.6%. Right. Um, it's it's uh, ridiculous. I mean, really 1.6%. That's <laughs> uh, crazy. So there will be, I think, and, and we, as we've seen, I think there has been, you know, a surge in, in, in activity in real estate. Um, but yeah, I think people are going to, they're going to get back to what they love doing, you know, and that's that's in cities and outside of cities and, you know, doing things with friends, gathering, going out to, you know, restaurants, clubs, Sporting events, music—I mean, we're all hungry for that, absolutely. And I think our downtowns, um, across the across the region, are all going to light up again once we all get vaccinated. Can't wait! Can't be soon enough.
2: No kidding. So it sounds like anyone listening who's waiting for a big correction in the near term here, you're you're not expecting at least that. Can we talk a little bit about just your take on Vancouver generally? Like, why is is Vancouver so expensive, and and how do we get here? <laughs>
3: I think it's always been expensive. Uh, it's a peninsula. Um, you know, the, the city and region uh, sit on a, sit on a, a peninsula of land. Uh, you know, bordered by the mountains, the ocean, the U.S. border. I think you know if you draw, if you go outside of Montreal and draw a circle with a 50-kilometer radius, you get about 8,000 square kilometers of land. You go to Toronto, do the same thing because of Lake Ontario, you get 4,000 square kilometers of land. But come to come to Vancouver and do that same 50-kilometer radius, you have 1,800. You know, you're a quarter, you're a quarter of what Montreal has in terms of terra firma. So, so land is precious, and and it gets the price of it gets bid up in really good locations, right? Um, construction costs—they're not going down. You know, the cost of material, labor, energy is all is all increasing, and 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 as I said before, you know, um, federal federal taxes. You know, GST on rental, provincial taxes, property transfer tax, you know, jacked up to 5% for large assemblies. Um, regional taxes, DCCs have doubled. City city DCCs and CACs, gone, they, they're now comprised like 15, sometimes 15 to 20% of the cost of housing. So I think those are all the forces making housing, you know, dear. Um, and it's, it's always been relatively expensive in this in this region, you know, from the beginning of the city.
2: And it sounds like there's kind of two components there. There's the natural components, I guess we can term it, but then there's policy involved in that. Like, mm. ha- has there been missteps along the way in terms of policy, zoning, CACs, that type of thing? Like, uh, can you speak a little bit more onto that uh, topic?
3: Yeah, Sure. Sure. I think. Well, I think we. You know, if we look at the land, if we look at land use, we should go back to. You know, when when Vancouver actually solidified land use plans with Euclidean zoning under Bartholomew, you know, the 1920s, you know, late 20s, 27, 28, with the Bartholomew plan. I'm speaking just of Vancouver here, but you know, um, the rest of the region sort of followed suit. I think you know uh, we've 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 done well and and and. We're, in retrofitting the, the urban core, you know, uh, after the, the decline of industry, um, you know, Walter Hartwick, who I studied with, I was Walter's last graduate, graduate student at uh, UBC. I did a thesis called Retrofitting Suburbs, um, and, the, and the basic question is, what do we do with our post-war suburbs? You know, auto-dependent, low density, sprawling, generally. Um, and, and, you know, the answer I found in working with Walter was, hey, well, why don't we look at our inner city and our streetcar neighborhoods that evolved before the Bartholomew Plan, where change could be organic and incremental. So we went through the Great Depression, you know, the, the trials of the First World War, the, the Great Depression after, and, and people evolved and changed the, their housing and neighborhoods changed and evolved generally with with less planning restrictions than we have today. but The, plan, the land use plan we have today reflects very much the 1927 Bartholomew plan. So we have right now, for example, almost 60% of our city locked into RS1 single-detached housing use that is affordable um, to less than 3% of our families based on income. So we have this weird situation. We have of economic apartheid Where we have land-use zoning, it says, no, you can only build a single-family home, or maybe a single-family home with a secondary suite, maybe a duplex, but that still doesn't budge the needle on affordability. You know, I think what the great learning I've seen in our city, you know, how people responded to the the increase in cost of housing, is to make better use of land, to increase the intensity of our use of land while making contributions towards commensurate increases in amenity. So we look at our streetcar suburbs or the downtown, and we've seen enormous, you know, uh, increases in density and 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 the use of the land, but also you know significant investments in amenity, daycares, parks, schools, cultural facilities, uh, recreational facilities. So we have this kind of balance. So downtown's a fabulous success story. Maybe maybe too successful because people realize, whoa, everybody wants this, and 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 the price of downtown housing has now gone up quite significantly. But I tell you what, when I was a student, uh, a grad student at UBC, I bought my first apartment downtown for $129,000 in the downtown South, which was part of that period in the, in the 90s and, and early 2000s when the downtown core doubled in population. And there was this flood of new housing on the market. I picked up, you know, $129,000 loft apartment. I mean, it was 580 square feet, so not the most, not the biggest place. But tell you what, I bought it. I was a student. I almost didn't have a full-time job yet and with a $5,000 RSP. So, you know, that was a success story um, in terms of um, living first, putting families downtown, creating this, this lovely living environment that was walking distance to, you know, thousands of jobs. You know, I think that was a success. The streetcar suburbs of Vancouver are still the most desirable places to live in this city. Strapcona, Kits, Mount Pleasant, leafy streets. But you look behind the leafy, the leafy front yards and the trees, and there's multifamily housing. And I think that's the way forward: is to is to open up our city to more intense forms of multifamily living but while preserving the kind of the bits that people really appreciated about our city and most of its landscaping and trees, frankly. Nice streets.
2: It's, and and the way to get there. And and I'm wondering if I'm uh, getting this right, but it sounds like the problems have been kind of central planning, as I understand it. Where what your thesis at least was looking into was kind of a more organic, market oriented kind of solution. Is that is that what am I understanding that right?
3: I think so. I think I think you know um, we, we 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 saw like organic change in in, in the downtown and the streetcar suburbs um, in the absence of really firm zoning control um, and then it was codified, you know, later on. So we saw, you know, RM zones, multi- multi-family apartment zones um, in kits. We, the, the city experimented with coach house infill. You saw a lot of really good experiments. Um, and then, of course, downtown, you know, sort of Vancouver is a model of Point Tower and the row house on the bottom. Um, we have all these sort of living models of what we could do in other parts of the city uh, and we could easily codify those, um, so you know through small housing b c um, on which I serve as a director, we're looking at um, and advocating the, the city to open up RS1 zoning to allow um, gentle forms of infill and, you know multifamily a duplex you know if, if if the starting if the starting price for, for a lot is is two million dollars. Um, just just carving it into a duplex isn't going to move the, the the needle on affordability, or let's call it accessibility. So currently in the RS zones, you know, three percent of families can afford to buy an, an RS one house based on on income. You know, the, people buying ha- are coming into this market with a lot of assets and a lot of equity, and um, and buying you know two million dollar, three million dollar plus homes. <clears throat> and um, I think we what we do, we need to see our forms of yeah, four plexes or, or six packs, as, uh, as my friend at the city, um, um, in St. Michelle, she, she designed, a, 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 I think it's a, a RN, RN, uh, RNRT10, RN10, I think, zoning for, for six packs. So, you know, creating a, a six-unit type of infill. Now, that'll move the, the, the needle on affordability, and I think create housing that may be affordable to uh, a quarter of, of households, rather than just 3%. Um, so I guess you know when we're thinking about that, we can't say about oh, affordable housing because frankly, you need a fair amount of income to afford it. But it's it's at least way more accessible and attainable to that that bandwidth of income earners. And then we have to look at you know the other submarkets in our city too. I think that's something that we really need to focus on a little more, both in the ownership sector and the, and the rental sector, is the different submarkets that we have in our market.
1: Yeah, maybe in thinking about the rental sector, the M-I-R-H-P-P <laughs> uh, is, some, yeah, is something we wanted to talk to you about. And we know it's had its critics, most notably uh, Patrick Condon, who's been on our show recently. Can you speak yeah. maybe, first of all, to Mert, but also about his critique of the program, what he gets wrong, and then maybe a little bit about your your take on it?
3: Sure. I think one of the great things the city can do is partner with the development industry to get affordable housing uh, and even get to reignite, restart the supply of purpose-built rental housing. Because for four decades, we haven't seen any in this city, just because the the, the conditions um, under which rental gets built um, have not been conducive to any kind of investment. You know, And I think at the end of the day, you have to think, mayor and council, they have to think, let's pretend it's like their investment, it's their pension fund. And um, just to start with, I think, you know, cities don't build affordable housing. Cities set the conditions and rules under which the industry or the market can build housing that's affordable. And so in my view, partnering with industry is the way forward. The Merck program is a really good example of that, where we know that, for example, the amount of money that you can pay... For a piece of the land, if you're going to build rental housing, it, you know the, the, the value of that land is probably half of what you could afford to pay if you're going to sell it, sell it forward as a condo. So the implication is, well, you need some vitamin D, you need some density uh, and intensity <laughs> over and above what you could you would normally get for a condo if if you want to incent the development of rental housing. Market perfect built market rental housing. Um, and so that's what the city's done with this moderate income program, and they said they've added an extra bar to say if you satisfy 20% of the area at rents that are affordable to middle income earners. So a studio, and here's what Patrick gets wrong. One of the things he gets wrong, he focuses on just the highest rent in the spectrum. He ignores the affordability of the other things. So a studio for 950 a month, your readers will say, hey, that's probably that's pretty good, you know, downtown Vancouver, or a one bedroom for $1,200 a month, a two-bedroom for $1,600 a month, and a three-bedroom for $2,000 a month. Put it this way, minimum wage is going to be $15.20 June of this year. So someone earning minimum wage, working full-time, can almost pretty much afford a studio apartment at nine fifty a month. I think it'll take maybe 36% of their income rather than 30, but it's close. And that's from a market program, where the private sector is building it. They're taking all the risk. They're operating it for the life of the building, or sixty years, whichever is greater. Those rents can only go up by the, the RTA increases every year. Um, they're protected. The, you know, the, the, this is a good deal for the city, and it's a, and most people renting will will appreciate those rents as being far below what market rents are, even for existing units. You're getting a new unit. At these below market unit rents, and in return, the city grants the developer extra height and density quid pro quo. And to me, that's fantastic. I think people who suggest that the city should go ahead and build all of our affordable housing are treading on very thin ice. You know, as someone who's worked in that field, I used to work for five years for CMHC, looking over, looking after all of the um, co-op and nonprofit housing uh, in British Columbia. Well, you know, my my territory was half the province. You know, they they don't realize the cost. And so there's the upfront cost. It's like an iceberg. The bricks and sticks are the tip of the iceberg. To actually build the building is just the tip of the iceberg. What's below the surface are the ongoing operating subsidies for the life of the building. And if if you hear someone saying that cities should build all of our housing and subsidize it below market, you have to ask yourself who's paying that bill. Because frankly, it's a huge bill. And I think it's naive to suggest that the city should go it alone like that. And I think it's naive to think that this is somehow going to economically work out right for everybody. You know, I'm a I'm a parent. I've got two teenage kids, and um, and all through my parenting life, I've had this sort of expression like, you know, this isn't going to end. This isn't going to end. This isn't going to turn out well. And I think that's the case. You know, where people say that you know the city should build all of our housing, I think I think the city is better positioned to partner with senior levels of government. You know, the model has been the city provides land, has senior levels of government you know, build it and, and subsidize it. That's been Vancouver's a fairly successful model, you know, up until when the, the Fed stopped um, funding affordable housing and handed it over to the province. But the province has $6 billion to spend right now on affordable housing. And you, you'll see a number of um, new investment and reinvestment and redevelopment projects move forward for you know, thousands of units of below-market housing on that partnership model. But yeah, I think it's naive to think that the city is going to build all of our, all of our below market housing. Um, It'll break the bank.
2: Right. It sounds like just to maybe going back a little bit, just so everyone understands the, the program here, instead of the city actually building affordable housing, they've partnered with uh, the development community and offered incentives to build purpose-built rental, as opposed to, condominiums, if I have that correct, and right. and the incentives are you can build higher density and mm-hmm. is there community amenity contributions there that you're... Um
3: the city will waive the development cost levy. So uh, when I worked at the city back in 2002 to 2006, the development cost levy was $3 a square foot. Today, it's $28 a square foot. <laughs> wow. Uh, so it's gone up a lot, Inflation. and so what, <laughs> yeah. So what the city, what the city will do is waive the DC, the DCLs, pay for uh, um, the parks, um, for daycares. You know, it's a, a limited basket of goods, but generally the city has the, the ability to waive those where there's affordable housing being provided because the housing is the amenity, right. both the market, the the, the market rental housing. Frankly, in, a, in a, coming out of a four decade period where no new market rental is being built where our, our, our vacancy rates are plummeting below one percent, below 0.5 percent, even just getting market purpose-built market rental housing is, is in, a, in effect a public amenity because we're adding to the supply, we're taking the stress off that submarket of housing. And then on top of that, you're getting 20 percent of the units or 20 percent of the area at rents far below market. In return, yes, you get you get some vitamin D, you get some density and height, and you get you get the DCLs waived. Um, that's the, that's really the extent of the subsidy the city is granting. It's fairly modest. The DCL waiver is maybe four percent of the capital cost of the new to new rental units. Um, it's a one time thing, and uh, and for the for the rest of the life of that project, the private owner operator. And, like, when you build a rental building, you don't run away with all the profits. You know, you've got to finance the building and then you've got to operate it for right. the next 50, 60, 100 years. So, so it's a job. You've just created a job for yourself, you know, um, fixing toilets and, and uh, taking care of property and, you know, g- you know, generally being responsible for the building. So it's a good deal because the, all, the private sector takes all of the risk. The city is not on the hook for a penny for the, for the rest of the life of that building. Now, where I think um, Patrick Conan gets it wrong, uh, is that he, he, said he, he, made the, he made a claim in the TIE that he could build four times, with the same amount of subsidy, he could build four times the number of units, um, but, but at much deeper levels of affordability, rents for $1,000 a month, and units that are 1,000 square feet each. And he could build four times the number of those units and then generate an operating surplus that would in turn fund new rental housing. And, you know... I think that this is where you get into the academics versus pracademics academics debate. And I think that people who have academic status and tenure that have high profile and immediate presence have a special responsibility to do their homework when it comes to critiquing policy, especially housing policy. And um, when I, I looked at Patrick's claims and I thought, no, he hasn't done the math. There's no competent economics to support what he's saying. And this is what happens when people think, oh, you know, they wave a magic wand at the problem. You need to do, you need to do the math. You need to really marry the plans to the pro forma, and then give political leadership and direction. And when I challenged Patrick on it, he couldn't produce a competent pro forma to back up what he's saying. I took it upon myself to try, and what I found was the alternate program that he suggested it doesn't make sense. It's not viable. It actually loses money every year. It has a mortgage. He thought he could he could build it just based on the subsidy that the moderate income program was receiving, but that was not the case.
2: So it sounds like it's <laughs> yeah, and we should say uh, in part we're talking about this because there was a uh, back and forth between you and Patrick and the Tai that was really interesting, right? He he critiqued the MERP policy, and then you came back, and it's yeah, anyone anyone listening who who wants to dig into the details. The tie yes. is the place, and we'll link to that in a, in our show notes for sure. Um, and I'll,
3: I'll tell you that there's there's only one pro forma that's, that that exists on that on that file, and it's mine. <laughs> so uh, Patrick, he still has not he still has not produced a pro forma to support what he was saying. So I think I think frankly, um, someone in that position really needs to to show their math, and uh, and if you can't, well, hmm, you know. I think if you're going to give policy advice, if you want to, if you want to lead the city, you know, I think Patrick ran for ran for mayor uh, at one point to pull out. Um, but I think if you're going to if you're going to be that leadership person, you need to have substance to back up your claims. And um, frankly, I'm still waiting for his performance. He doesn't want to get into the weeds. He says, but "Okay." <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. So uh, with these, with these, because there is a lot of purpose-built rental uh, being built right now, or I shouldn't say a lot, but there's some. It seems like it's more part of the conversation than it was for sure. So uh, this 20% below market where the rents are below market in, in perpetuity, mm-hmm. the program sounds like it's a win for you. Is is the challenge actually just getting more built? Absolutely. So
3: I'll put it in perspective. I, you know, I've done, and I did the math on... on um, i also did a pro forma for Tony Papa Jones Birch and Broadway program that also attracted a lot of critique criticism. People were charging that this, you know, this was a it was a giveaway, and that the developer was going to have runaway profits um, because of the extra height and density. What, what I showed and my my intuition, my development intuition, and my planning intuition, told me that no, this is marginal, and and I think all of it, this is what your listeners need to understand. Like these rental market rental programs. Um, are quite marginal. So the, the the pension fund of the mayor council, myself as, as employees of as, you know I was a former employee of the city, so I have a municipal pension. The benchmark return that the municipal pension plan of British Columbia seeks for domestic real estate is 6.7%. So you invest um, 100 million in in a real estate project, the pension fund wants 6.7 million dollars back every year on that 100 million. So the, the returns that, you, that I'm seeing on market rental projects, like the Merck projects, are barely over 4% per annum. That's before tax, before finance. So, you know, it's, it's not runaway money. It's not runaway profit. There's still quite marginal products. So people have the choice. They could build condominiums or you could build rental housing. You have to incent the development of rental housing. And I think we need to do that with clear heads, clear economics, and be
2: flexible with plans. One thing that strikes me is that I would ask it as a question, but it seems fairly obvious that I think in the narrative of the problems of the city around affordability, that the develop the greedy developer kind of, you know, is uh, is the <coughs> villain right, and, and that, yeah, it's yeah. kind of a caricature, right? Um, uh, yeah. And I think that's a, a huge problem, but the more interesting question for me is why are these developers actually building this, <laughs> this purpose-built rental with such low returns.
3: Well, I think if you have, if you already own the land, and if you are in the business of, you know, a lot of developers are patient investors and are willing to take a, a lower return over a longer period. So, CMHC did a really interesting study that I, re- I link in reference to in, in the articles in the Taii and and in the debate on the, the, the Broadway and Birch Program. If you just Google it, Google it, you'll find my post probably on Twitter or something. But CMAC did a really interesting study, and they found that there are conditions, you know, in in major urban centers where where developers will accept um, a lower return over a longer period of time. So it really depends on the the, the amount of density you can get on a site and the cost of developing.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: So if you already own the land um, and you can get more use of that site. Uh, than the the numbers generally work, especially in a low interest rate environment. I think that'll all change if interest rates go up. Uh, I think we'll see a lot less rental housing being built in Vancouver.
1: So, Michael, maybe just kind of pulling back and and thinking about some other steps that the city can take to improve affordability. um, Can you talk about some of your thoughts on that? And then also... um, (coughs) We'd like to hear, kind of realistically, where where you actually see the next five to ten years actually playing out on the ground um, as, a, as a pracademic, yeah, as a pracademic, as a academic. <laughs> so maybe your your hopes and dreams, <laughs> yeah. but then also it, the reality of the situation.
3: Yeah, I, I don't think there's one solution. So, for example, the moderate income rental program, um, it can't it can't be the one and only solution for affordable rental. You know. Folks like Patrick will say, you know, will criticize it because it's not meeting the needs of the lowest income earners. Well, it can't, you know. One program can't cover all bases. So we, I think, you know, as a housing strategy moving forward, that's informed by economics and, and, and development interests. I think we need to look at multiple multiple submarkets of rental. So, you know, core need housing. I think we need to partner with the federal and provincial governments more. They've got a lot of money to invest. And the city can be a great partner by providing, you know, land or airspace in order to create very affordable housing for people who are living with low incomes. We should continue to incent market market rental um, because the increasing supply will impact vacancy. It will impact asking rents. You know, we're already seeing that as a few thousand new units. Um, come onto the market. There are impacts. People, you know, people who criticize supply side theory. Oh, it's not going to, you know, the the um, landlords are price set, price setters, not price takers. That doesn't pan out. You know, that's uh, also the case in Seattle. You know, where, where more supply means lower rents and higher vacancy and more choice for people. Right. So we should continue programs like Merck Um, I think we need, you know, the last thing I did when I was working as a a major project planner for the city was the um, the policy plan for Oak Ridge Centre, which kicked off, I think, uh, probably a dozen, a half dozen other um, major regional mall retrofits throughout the region. So, you know, looking at major projects like that where we can make better use of land, add multifamily housing at pretty decent intensity, Uh, we can see you can see more affordable forms of multifamily. And I think it's going to be a multifamily future. You know, very few people can afford a $2 million suburban house in, in the city of with a $3 million it's just not going to be. It's not going to be mm-hmm. the solution. Uh, and then what I think what we can do is with city plan, we can look at broad brush changes for all neighborhoods to enable, you know, almost as of right types of gentle infill that get more than two units per lot, you know, four units per lot, maybe six units per lot. The type of development that we see in Kitts and Mount Pleasant and Strathcona, remember those some of the most livable parts of our city and 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 replicate that in neighborhoods that have good transit, local shopping, and and you know great great streets. So we can do that. I think we can do that in a very general way across the city. Yes, our neighborhoods are unique. But guess what? The DNA of Vancouver, I can tell you right now, is 33 feet, 40 feet, 50 feet by 120 foot with a 20 foot lane behind it. You know, our neighborhoods are different, but the DNA that underpins all of them is pretty identical no matter where you go. Um, That changes if you go outside of Vancouver, but, but generally speaking, I think we can come up with forms of infill that don't require, you know, a year or two years of rezoning that will give us multifamily options that are intrinsically less expensive than you know the single-family status quo. And the status quo, if we don't change, the status quo is just is what I see. I've been living in Dunbar for the last five years is um, a $3 million house being torn down and replaced by a $5 million house. That's right. the status quo. So if we do nothing, it's just going to get worse. We have to do something. We need a retrofit. I go back to the classic because I can pick up my 1997 thesis you know, the last thesis that my uh, Walter Harbick signed uh, in his career was, was, was mine. And it was, you know, the thesis was, hey, we have to we have to retrofit our cities and suburbs to meet economic, environmental, social needs moving forward.
2: Maybe as a as a, it's actually a kind of perfect uh, segue to to maybe a final question for you here, Michael. You wrote about retrofitting the suburbs in 97. That's, um, let me see here, 25 years ago. Yeah, Yeah, 24 24 years ago. So this has been talked about for a while. We're still seeing $3 million houses torn down and $5 million houses uh, replacing them. Are you optimistic about the next 5, 10, 15 years? Do you think Vancouver is going to get a significant (laughs) facelift in terms of densifying areas outside of the core?
3: I see it happening. You know, I, I see it happening on the high streets. The city is, you know, coming up with this, um, C2R program to incent rental on our, on our, on our shopping streets by allowing two more floors for, if you do a rental building, six stories you can do in wood. That, that's inherently affordable. They're talking about, um, transitional areas that, that build off of the high streets that where we can, you know, they're looking at enabling low rise apartments and, 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 you know, middle, uh, we'll call it, um, you know, the, the, uh, missing middle kind of housing. The voices in support of that are growing. And I think, you know, my friend Gordon Price, uh, the mentor, a friend, uh, you know, former, I think the sixth term city councilor, yeah, of he has favorite. talked about. Yeah, Gordon's fantastic. Um, he talks about the grand bargain, which was, you know, what we're going to, we're going to only, we're going to constrain, we're going to limit change to our downtown, to the new neighborhoods, and maybe to that first ring of streetcar suburbs, but we're not going to touch the next ring out. And this applies in a lot of cities, like a lot of different, different cities in the region kind of, um, politicians, um, work off the same grand bargain. You know, like we're not going to touch these neighborhoods. They're, they're sacrosanct. But I think just the, just the, the sheer cost of, of housing in those places is slowly changing that. And you're, you're hearing more people in support of changes. People who live in these neighborhoods who say, I'd love to take my big old house and, and, um, either adapt it, tear it down, rebuild it, infill it. So I can house myself, downsize into a bungalow, single-level living, and, and accommodate my kids and two or three other units that are stratified. Those voices are going to get louder, and um, and and the city's looking at waiving minimum parking uh, requirements, which is a huge win for affordability in multifamily, because frankly, you're achieving two things: one, you know, climate. Climate and, and environmental benefits in terms of incenting people to take transit or cycle, and the second is you know a parking stall underground. The hard cost is fifty thousand, you know, uh, you know maybe 120, 130 bucks a square foot times an average of four hundred square feet per stall. But then on top of that, you have soft cost, design costs, all the other expenses. Like a stall is actually about sixty to seventy thousand dollars at the end of the day for one. So if we waive minimal parking requirements, you know, we set the conditions for more affordable housing. So I think I think we can we'll see more change in in more neighborhoods and um, uh, people making better use of land. But we need to do it carefully. Um, so you know, back to that adage around you know increased intensity with commensurate amenity. So this balancing act, and we have to be careful, for example, with the amenity, not to gold plate it or platinum plate it. I think for decades the has enjoyed extracting CACs from new development. So the next person to buy a new condo is paying for the daycare or the child, you know, or the, the cultural facility. Right. Um, but we have to be careful because that, you know, a lot of people say that doesn't come out of the cost of land. Of the cost doesn't come out of the price of the housing. It comes out of the, the the land price that the developer pays to the landowner. That's not entirely true because in order for that to happen. You need, a, you need perfect information, and the whole CAC process is full of imperfect information. And, um, you know, I've, I've heard it, uh, I've heard the game be described as community amenity cocaine. <laughs> we've got CACs, we've got, Vancouver has two drug problems. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but we have to be careful about what we extract out of new development to make sure that we're not, in fact, taking it out of um, the pockets of people buying, trying to buy a new house but, uh, but we can move forward. America. Yeah, yeah. There are other cities doing interesting things like this, you know, so we just seen Sacramento essentially outlaw single-family zoning, yeah, which is kind of interesting, and, and, and from waiving parking requirements. Um, Portland is doing similar things. So I think, you know, we can, we can see in our cities, various places, built examples of what we could do in lower-density parts of our cities and, and replicate them.
2: Fantastic. Well, we have a segment called the five wire uh, five kind of lighthearted or not so lighthearted. They seem to be getting increasingly more sure. less or less lighthearted. Can you stick <laughs> around
3: for that? We'll keep it light.
1: Yeah. A couple heavy hearted in there. Um, so <laughs> no, first, no first question is, uh, Michael, what is your favorite neighborhood in Vancouver?
3: Oh, tough one, you know, um, because I've lived all over the place, you know, living here, living here for 30 years, um, as a student, especially you move around, so I'd have to say, you know what? Um, downtown Triangle West. Uh, I, I lived in Triangle West for f- uh, about four years, and boy, talk about propinquity, and being close to everything. And ironically, massive sociability and, and it, it within a high-rise building. I knew more of my neighbors in the high-rise than I than I that I've met in Dunbar. In Dunbar, I know my neighbor to my left, my neighbor to my right, nobody else. Downtown, I knew scores of people in my building. This naked would kiss would kiss my daughter, you know, in her little pram going up the elevator. My next door neighbor was Matthew Good. Um, you know, I knew so many interesting people in that building. Uh, it was and, and, and you know, people criticize high rises for being antisocial, bunk. I, yeah, I, think bunk, I found uh, that too. You know?
2: Yeah, I, I always find that. that strange that it's you know the cold and uh, I I feel like when I yeah. used to live downtown too, I I knew everyone in the building.
3: Yeah, no, you know, every building has a front door, a mailroom, a lobby, a con- you know, we had a concierge. You know, it was a social oasis. Everyone, everyone gathered there. It's amazing. Okay, first
2: question. <laughs> fa- fa- favorite bar or restaurant?
3: Oh, man, Taco Fino. What well, I'd give right now for, a, for a, a, a a cod taco and a dirty margarita.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but not at home. <laughs> no, no. Only if it's at the restaurant. <laughs> Uh, what is one book that you would recommend anyone listening should read?
3: Um, well, if we're talking about Vancouver and the future of Vancouver, I, I've got—I've uh, just rearranged my books. Um, I just moved recently, so I had to rearrange my bookshelf, and I had to decide what stayed on the top shelf. And um, it's Larry—Larry Larry Beasley's *Vancouverism*, which just came out, which is a really fascinating read. Um, and uh, I, I, I'm actually teaching for Larry. This month uh, in his uh, SCARP class. So um, I'll, I'll pull it out and, and give myself a refresh. We, it's
1: a great we, book. We've actually given away, I think, 100 on this show. Yeah, we, think we've we, given 100 we, copies away Larry, on this Larry's show. Larry's
2: actually been on the show a few times. Yeah. Uh,
1: that's a great yeah. book. It's a, it is a fantastic book. Um, what is one piece of advice that you'd give your 18 year old self?
3: Trust your intuition trust your intuition it's always it, it, in in my life i've made some i made some interesting choices and and um took different different paths and uh i always follow my gut and uh and i think i'd go back i'd tell myself it's going to be okay <laughs>
2: <laughs> last question for you michael one thing over the last year or two you have bought for under a thousand dollars that has transformed your life or made a positive impact, <laughs> or, or tweaked
1: it slightly
3: oh my gosh in, in, in this time of pandemic I gotta say you know the other day on Amazon I bought a $150 massage table and uh my uh my, my partner my wife Josie is a um, personal trainer and uh Oh my gosh, like it's the best thing ever. It's like having a, having, it's like living in a spa, it's amazing for 150 Wait, so bucks. So
1: the, but, but the, you need the person to, I was going to say, you, right? you need an in house masseuse, though,
3: correct? <laughs> that's right. That's right. No, 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 it's quid pro quo. You know, you got to, you got to trade these things. No, as long as you've got uh, a great partner, it'll all work out.
1: Right. <laughs> wow. It sounds like you have a
2: really great partner.
1: <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do. I do.
1: <laughs> well, well, we'll leave it there. But Michael, how can people find out more about what you're doing, more about what you're writing, and of course, uh, livable city planning?
3: Yeah. So uh, my, my uh, website's livablecityplanning dot com. Uh, I'm, I'm pretty active on Twitter. Um, and, uh, I think it's uh, M. M. Mortensen uh, on Twitter. And um, yeah, I've got to do some more work on my marketing, but uh, I'm, you know, I, I work for a handful of clients, um, uh, in very interesting, diverse projects, uh, and so you'll see me pop up in the media from time to time. Um, I, I love what I do. I, I just I love this city. I've been bitten by urbanism from the from the you know the minute I arrived here. I cycled here from London, Ontario, in 1990, uh, oh, over wow. the Rockies. Yeah, and and the minute I landed in Vancouver, I was, I was just stunned by the, the the beauty of the place and this interesting juxtaposition of cities, the city, mountains, the ocean. It's never um, and it's never it's never dull. I tell you, the great great place to work.
2: Fantastic. Well, thanks again, Michael, for your time. We'll have to have you back on to talk about that cycling story.
3: (laughs) Oh, sure, 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 sure. Sleeping with the bears. Yeah. Yeah. All right. All
2: right. Take care. And thanks again.
3: Thanks for having
2: me. So there you have folks, our discussion with Michael Mortensen. Director of Livable City Planning, but also he teaches at Sauter School of Business. He's an urban planner. He writes in the Tai, engaged in various debates, and just what a great conversation.
1: Yeah, I love that conversation. It was so great having Michael on the program. Um, next week, it would be a huge mistake not to mention our guest for next week, because join us next week for none other than Colin Boza, the CEO of Boza Properties, Colin was actually uh, somebody that we've wanted to have on the program for five years now.
2: I would say uh, <laughs> since the start of 2016.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. And uh, we finally got him, and that's uh, thanks in a large part to uh, Gene Openshaw. Uh, yeah, the and VP I, of I wanna, sales over at Bozo. VP of sales. I hope I've I've only ever read Gene's name because it's, it's always somewhere in the in the Bozo marketing and then right. in the emails and everything else, but... Uh, I she's, think you got Jean awesome. right. It's yeah.
2: Openshaw. I think you're concerned about.
1: Yeah. No. Yeah. Could you imagine? I was like, <laughs> it's Jean. I, Jean. Is it Jean? Uh, no. But uh, anyways, Jean is uh, is amazing. She's been uh, she's been great to connect us to people at Boza. So thank you, Jean. And she's great to work with as well. Absolutely. Bose, so. Absolutely. What else
2: we got? What else do we have today? Uh, before we go, we have VancouverRealEstatePodcast dot This is our website where all things real estate. Live, yes. things like the Livewire, this is our mailer every week, week in, week out. We sent the stats out this month before anyone else, I would right. say, uh, and including stats that you can't get anywhere else, sub-markets, sub-regions, you want to be on the Livewire to get that. We also have deal of the month and uh, an assortment of other real estate-related things.
1: There's no reason why you shouldn't be on the Livewire. wire. sure. We also have private client services. And Matt, if you are not using PCS, you are standing still while the rest of us power walk by. You get sold prices, days on market. You get realtor-level information. It's free. It's at your fingertips. It's available through VancouverRealEstatePodcast.com. And really, there's no better way to search for real estate in Vancouver. And I got to say, these guys are getting a facelift, and it hasn't been a long time coming. In fact, I've always loved how just basic... The software is because it's, it's not fancy like other, like, the, I feel like there's like a race to be complicated and fancy or, or in to how be you like, show mar- like how you market listings. But these guys, it's just, it's simple. And that's what I love about it is it's like, there's a new listing, it shows you the photo, it integrates with maps, it gives you all the information, but it looks kind of and, beta. And it's like a, it's like a spreadsheet, right? Yeah. You can see, okay,
2: this one's sold, it's sold for this price. Totally. Very, it's, very it's great
1: for numbers people that just want, you just want the straight dope. Yeah, it gives you the straight dope. Also, if you don't even care
2: about numbers at all, it just gives you properties 36 yeah. to 72 hours before everybody else.
1: Right. And uh, gives you information you need. Exactly. But they are getting a facelift. So it's going to be, I think, uh, prettier, um, but hopefully the same functionality. We're just, uh, we're actually doing some testing with them right now. And I was on a call the other day, kind of looking over the the new research tool. One thing about it, you can do a lot more with it. Yeah. So stay tuned for that. Uh, we're super excited. And then, of course, we have the Sellers Club, Matt.
2: That's right. The Sellers Club, this is the hottest club in Vancouver right, right now and the safest, Adam.
1: We also have a big incentive right now, Matt. If you are thinking about listing in the spring market or if you have a friend that you want to introduce us to who's thinking of buying or selling this spring, get in touch. Um, we have a password, Matt. The password is PowerWalker2021. That's right. PowerWalker2021. Uh, exactly. So if you introduce us to a friend or if you want to list your property, we have an incentive for you. Um, this is going to be running for a very short period of time. So do get in touch. And what else, Matt, before we cut for the I, day?
2: I would only say that uh, if you want to talk about that... Or anything else, right. give me a call at any time, seven seven eight eight four seven two eight five
1: four, or Matt at Vancouver Real Or you can try me at seven seven eight eight six six four five seven four, or Adam at Vancouver Real
2: We also have that secret line info at Vancouver Real Estate Well, have a great week, guys, and next week, Colin Boza does not disappoint. Enjoy two
3: thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. <laughs>